0: We will be reading today from Genesis chapter 24, verses, it's a long chapter, so we are going to read verses 1 to 27, and then you will move on to verse 61 through 67, so beginning at 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord said, So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master." Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder, and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord, and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. We'll stop reading there and move on in the same chapter on to verse 61 and read through the end of the chapter. Then Rebecca and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Bir Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Alice. We were going to have Alice read all sixty-seven verses, but we realized that would be about ten to twelve minutes, maybe even fifteen. So we thought, you know what? We'll um, and since, anyways, the servant basically repeats the story twice in the story. We thought that would suffice this morning. Uh, hopefully you followed and saw our video yesterday, encouraging you to read the whole chapter before uh, you came this morning just to be prepared. Uh, but this morning we get to look at really, I think, one of the sweetest stories of God's providence, working in the lives of those he loves. Uh, this is It's really a beloved story to both Jews and to Christians, this story of Isaac and Rebecca. And as I said, due to its length, we can't work through all the details in one morning. But what we're going to do this morning is, we're going to walk through the story by looking at the faith of Abraham, and then his servant, and then Rebecca, who all trusted in this story in the Lord's uh, covenantal faithfulness. It's, the word is hesed in Hebrew, it's his covenant, covenantal faithfulness. And his kind provisions and his providence. That's what we're going to do this morning. Because really in their faith, we see a road map that can be used for our own faith. In what they trusted in. What they believed in. In their trusting and, and, and in ours. We trust in the same God, don't we? Even though it's hundreds and, uh, and a thousand or two thousand years later. Same God who hasn't changed. It's the same God. Have you ever had to trust God in matters you couldn't see clearly, how they would work out? Of course you have. These three characters can relate to you. Have you ever been asked to obey when you didn't see clearly, but it just looked too hard what you were being asked to do? Of course you have. These three characters can relate to that as well. We're also this morning going to make a beeline to Jesus Christ at the Lord's Supper this morning. Hopefully you've got your elements there or if you're watching at home, you've got something prepared. Jesus, the one who truly trusted in the Lord's covenantal faithfulness and His kind provisions and His providence on His rescue mission to earth. We're going to make a line there as well this morning. You know, even in their best moments, even their best moments of Abraham. And Rebecca and this servant, they're nothing in comparison to Christ. And their faithful obedience was really only made possible by Christ. So let's begin this morning. Because this is such a story of providence, is the word this morning. Much like the book of Ruth, if you remember the story uh, we did a, a year or two back. Let's begin by defining what providence is, because it's such a big theme of this morning's message. It's timely that I just received in the mail, this doorstopper. Actually, it's a book, but it could be a doorstopper. Um, A a new book by John Piper entitled Providence. Just the one word, Providence. Um, Clearly, this is a topic we can't exhaust in five minutes of a sermon today. You see, an entire book was written on this. But it's so important for our story today and ultimately for your life. This idea of providence, we have to pause just for a moment here this morning. Now, providence is not a word used necessarily in the Bible, but it's more a reality presented. It's not a word that you hear. You're not going to have that word presented, but it's a reality, just like other words in the Bible. The, The word Trinity is not in the Bible. The word actually discipleship actually isn't in the Bible. Disciple is. The word evangelism really isn't. The word charismatics isn't. All words not used, but pointing to biblical realities that are there nonetheless, like the word providence. And I realize this morning, I'm kind of giving you a definition before we get to see it in action in the story, but I think clarity up front is good so we know what we're looking at. So here's a couple definitions to help us understand. Providence. It's uh, from Piper's new book. I did not read the whole thing this weekend. (laughs) Just the intro in chapter one as it tied into such a big theme of this passage. But here's just a couple short definitions he gives. First one's this. Providence is God's purposeful action. Pretty About as simple as you can take that. It's his purposeful action. Where he says that a little more thoroughly. The act of purposely providing for and sustaining and governing the world it's his act of 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 seeing to it of of taking care of it of acting in and and through all things to accomplish his purposes you know we saw a perfect example of this a perfect example a couple weeks back in genesis 22 We talked about the sacrifice of Isaac. Do you remember that a couple weeks back? It's actually the first time providence is talked about openly in the Bible. Genesis 22, when Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. It's when he was going to sacrifice Isaac. And he says, God will provide for himself the lamb. The The word there, provide, in this verse literally translates in Hebrew to see, to see. Think about your eyes, to see something. So really what it literally says is there, God will see for himself the Lamb. But basically every translation translates it as provide, not to see. God will not see for himself the Lamb. God will provide for himself the Lamb. Almost every translation. Why is that? Because I believe that Moses wants to communicate that whenever God is looking, whenever God is seeing with his eyes, he's acting. He's working. He's governing in providence. He's never a passive seer, in other words. He's always acting when he's seeing. Piper said something similar to this in this book. It's his last quote from him this morning. He said, in other words, referring to this verse, There's a profound theological reason why God's providence does not merely just mean just his seeing, but rather his seeing to it. When God sees something, he sees to it. Evidently, as Moses wrote Genesis 22, God's purposeful engagement with Abraham was so obvious, there it is, purposeful engagement, so obvious that Moses could simply refer to God's perfect seeing as implying God's purposeful doing. He does it. His seeing was his seeing too. His perception implied provision, his providence. God's purposeful action, that's providence. And it's all over this story this morning. Providing, sustaining, governing the world is another term for it. Where God sees, he does, he acts. Doesn't this sound like a trustworthy God? One you could find peace in? That wherever He's looking in your life and seeing, He's acting and working on your behalf. That's why it matters this morning that we define this up front and why this story lays this out for us so clearly. It matters because your life is not fated, even in God's sovereignty and providence. Your life is not up to chance either. It's not a random conglomeration of meaningless, meaningless successive events. It's not that. <laughs> the world might tell you that. No. Where he is present, he's acting through all things and all circumstances. Which is challenging, because a lot of our circumstances are really hard, aren't they? And really challenging. Well, one more quick definition. This one's a bit more complex, but I think it's helpful for us. Uh, you know, some of like give me the two words that summarize this. Some of us like a little more detailed. Here's one from the Heidelberg Catechism: The Almighty, everywhere present power of God, the defining providence, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs that herbs and grass, rain and drought. Fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches or poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance in your life, but by his fatherly hand. Imagine if those two last words were left out. But it comes by his fatherly hand. Just a more complex way of saying God's providence is God's purposeful action in your life. But I love that def- definition, as I said, because it, it puts in there fatherly hand. Because the one who providentially rules all things treats his children like a father. The best father. A loving father. Well, obviously, like I said, we're just scratching the surface of what providence is. But let's take a look. Now, we'll get to see it in action now. Sometimes action of what we're talking about, you get a better idea of what it is. As we look at the three main characters in God's providence as we work through this story now of Isaac and Rebecca, And in each of them, we're going to see elements of their faith that have to be, have to be motivated by a belief in God's providence. How otherwise could they act the way they do and say the things they say unless Abraham, his servant, and Rebekah believe this thing we're talking about today, providence? Let's start with Abraham. Abraham in faith, this morning in our story, he seeks to pass on the promises, obeying in what he knows and trusting in God in what he doesn't know. Here in our story, we get the last words of Abraham in his earthly life. We get his last words of his earth, in his earthly life today. And he is finishing well. He didn't start, well, he started pretty great leaving his home er, and, and walking and following God, but he's, he had some major bumps along the way, didn't he? I mean, we talked about some tragic things in his life, missteps and lack of faith, but here he's finishing well. What's he doing? He's securing the future for his son Isaac while resting on the covenant promises of God. He's securing the future, and what is going to happen to his son Isaac And he himself, as well as the servant and Rebecca, they all act in this story. All three of them act in this covenant faithful loyalty I mentioned at the top of the sermon. Hesed, it's called. All three of them are so faithful, so loyal here, so trusting on such a deep level in the promises of God. And first thing Abraham's got to take care of, he has a responsibility to pass on the promises to the next generation. Isaac's been born. The story tells us Abraham is getting ready to pass away. He's old in years. He's got a responsibility to make sure this program of God and his salvation for the world is secure in the next generation. His promises of a large family, promises of a nation, promises of a land that would come through his family line, those are the promises. That's the covenant. So what's he going to do? In the, in the um, kind of the, the uh, way, the culture of their day, he goes about it the way they would to secure a bride for Isaac, his son. He, and he himself invokes a covenant of sorts, kind of weird a little bit, like, place your hand under my thigh to his servant. It. It's a little odd, but he's kind of really making a covenant, and it's sort of talking about the seed, and it's kind of close to where all that line comes from. It's a really odd, we don't do that anymore, just so you know. Um, But he does make, he does this weird, strange covenant with his servant. And what's he saying to his servant? See to it. Providence, see to it. Make sure. Take care of it. Show me you really mean it by putting your hand under my thigh. I don't know, but that's what they did. Promise me, Isaac cannot ever leave this land and go back to our home. And he must not marry a Canaanite pagan. Not just because she's Canaanite. That really wasn't the issue. The issue is that a Canaanite woman wouldn't serve Yahweh. That was the issue. That's what was important. Look for a woman for Isaac to marry, he says, from our kindred, from our household, a woman who would join Isaac as the new patriarch and matriarch of the promises of God. So this land, it must be ours. God promised it, and we must be faithful to stay in it. Don't take them back to our homeland. Never do that. He's trusting and obeying God, Abraham is, in what he knows about God, the promises he's been given, the surety of the covenant, God's own faithful loyalty to him. And so he acts. He does whatever he can secure this whatever he can in his human power to pass this on to make sure it sticks with isaac and his family i love abraham's concern for the coming generation the generation behind him it's such a great example for us because this has been the mark of god's people throughout the entire history of the church in all history to be concerned for the next generation the one behind you, the one coming after you, to pass on God's promises. To not be concerned for the next generation or to take it lightly is to abandon our call as the people of God. It's to throw it to the wind. Each and every one of us, everybody in this room now, You can't say that very often. I'm saying it here. Every one of us in this room, down to the last one of us, has some responsibility in our church and in your own homes to prepare the next generation for living out their faith. Our faith. To pass it on. Even if the only thing you ever do is pray for the next generation, you've got a role. To bring them to Jesus, to show them his gospel, his new covenant, as Abraham did with his son passing on the promises that have been made to him. And fathers, grandfathers, like Abraham here, you and I have a unique responsibility to raise them in the context of a gospel life-giving community, to do everything you can in your power to pass it on. And if we don't, We will be accountable to God for that. And we thank God even in the midst of that for godly mothers and grandmothers where in some situations they stepped in where dad wouldn't. But dads, we get to. We get to. You don't have to. You get to be part of passing on what we have to the next generation. But guess what? If you don't have it, You can't pass it on. And all of us are called to this in some way. You can't pass on what you don't have yourself. And not just to children, but older men and women in our church. Who are the younger adults in your life, in your church, in your family, that you are part of passing on the faith to? There's a paradigm shift here that we need Bethany Church. There's a paradigm shift. We have to have Bethany Church. That's a, big, that's a big statement to say. That each and every one of us have to see ourselves as ministers of the gospel. Every person in this room, if you've trusted Christ, you have to see yourself as a pastor of the gospel, a minister of the gospel, if you have that gospel. It's not just the hired hands. It's not just the ministry staff or the elders or deacons and deacons, deaconesses. It's a paradigm shift. You have been called to pass on the promises of God, but you have to know them yourself to pass them on, and you've got to be involved deep enough in a community where you actually have opportunities to pass them on in your family and in the church. So Abraham does that. He plans what he can, but where he can't see, what does he do? He trusts the providence of God. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me again of that massive chapter 24. Uh, we start second half of seven, chapter 7. Uh, the promise is to your offspring I will give this land. And Abraham says he will send an angel before you, servant, and you shall take a wife for my son. But if the woman's not willing to follow you, and you'll be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. Abraham's final words in, recorded in his lifetime are a simple trust in the providence of God. This, this So uh, a pivotal character in the Bible. His final words are just a simple trust in the providence of God. God will provide. Servant, his angel, his angel will go ahead of you. So go. Abraham believed that God and his providence had already ordained this turn of events that would take place, and that even though he couldn't see it, he couldn't know how it would work out. He didn't doubt the power of God to work, to see to it, providence. And as we see, God does. And as he does in the story when the servant goes to the well, there's no earth-shattering miracle, is there? The laws of nature are not suspended, but God just works through the natural, normal events of daily life. That's providence. He works his providence, as J.I. Packer says about the life of believers in providence, he says, believers are never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them, he goes on, he says, is divinely planned. And each event comes as a new summons to trust and obey. That old Sunday school song, Trust and Obey, it got it right. <laughs> and that's what Abraham does and how his story wraps up. And this is huge for us. It's placed here at the end of Abraham's life, this simple trust in the providence of God to encourage us that all of life works this way. All of life. And not just Abraham's because he was some special man of God. Yours too. God's providence. God providently ordaining and directing your day-to-day events of your life. Sure, there are a lot of questions with this and this is complex and how does it all work out. There's so much to talk about with that. But the truth is here. The truth is present. The theme of this story is meant to bring this right to the surface for us. Now, that doesn't mean you're a faded robot. We sometimes say, some people say, well, if God ordains everything, I'm just a robot. Do I really matter what I say, what I do? No, no, no. The Bible also teaches that even though God ordains all things, you also make real, meaningful choices that have an impact in this world that you'll be accountable to God for. How those two things come together in the grand scope of eternity The Bible doesn't give us that answer, but it's there. You are responsible for everything you do and every act you make. It's clear in the Bible. And yet at the same time, the Bible says, God ordains all things and works through all things, everything. But what a magnificent comfort to know, even if you can't work out every final detail, that the kind hand of a heavenly Father is directing your life. But comfort... What a magnificent comfort to know that. You know who else knew it in this story? Abraham's servant. What an interesting guy. He's been called one of the most interesting minor characters in all of the Bible. We don't even get his name, do we? So let's take a look at him, the servant. The servant now, as we move from Abraham to the servant in faith, he obediently responds in action while asking God as well, To providentially intervene through the common circumstances. So here he is. He's the oldest servant in Abraham's house. The story says he makes his this oath to his master. And it's possible we don't get the name, but it's really possible this guy. Remember this name, Eleazar of Damascus. He showed up a little bit earlier in the story. When Abraham and Sarah were fretting and freaking out, we've got no heir to give everything to. It's going to be my servant, Eliezer of Damascus, Lord. It's possible that it's that guy. It doesn't even get named now in the story. If it is him, he was at one time going to be the heir to a great fortune. Now imagine the loyalty and faithfulness he is showing. Now that he's no longer the heir... And now he's to go and provide for the new heir who took my place, Isaac. Think of the loyalty this man shows. No bitterness, just quick, obedient action. He's an incredible character. We don't know his name, but we do realize the importance of this venture he's to go on. Do we? I hope we do. Do we? Do you realize that? Let's, let's revisit that because it's so important. Back to Genesis. Way back, in, we did a first series on Genesis beginnings. Do you remember this? Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, this was God's words, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you remember, God was making that promise to Satan and to Adam and Eve that someone would come, Eve, from your line that's going to crush Satan. And Satan, someone's going to come from this woman's line that's going to crush you, is do we understand why there's been such a, a conflict between Satan and humanity for all of history? It goes right back here, right to this. This is the promised line of the seed we've talked about that the Messiah, a Savior, is going to come from this woman's family line. This offspring would crush Satan. So, this unnamed servant is tasked to go and find the great grandmother of Jesus. Do you see why this is important? I mean, it was great, 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 but I do not want to think through that. The great-grandmother of Jesus. That's how important this mission is. And what faith he shows as he goes. I love his prayer because, again, it shows a man who absolutely trusts in the providence of God. Again, he asks for God to work through the ordinary means of life, the daily life that you pretty much live through every day. An ordinary day. He's the first one, do you know? He's the first one in the Bible to ask at a crisis, a crucial moment, for God to intervene in prayer. Let's look at, let's look at the prayer. It's that important. I want to look at it again. Verse 12 through 14, just a couple of verses. Here was his prayer, and he said, "O oh Lord, God my master, of my master Abraham, please grant me success today, and show steadfast there's that steadfast love to my master Abraham." Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know you have shown, there it is again, steadfast love to my master. He doesn't say, Lord, put a glowing halo of light around her. Let her shine in a way that I just, I, I just will know. No, he just says, you know what, God? Let her be a kind and hardworking woman for my master Isaac. Now, it's an exact demand, isn't it? He says, uh, I will say this, she will say this. It's exact, but it's just, again, a normal part of the day. Let her be at the well. I'll say something at the well. She'll say something back to me. Le- Lord, let this be the one you've chosen for him. He's absolutely acting in obedience while trusting God intervene in His providence. See to it, God. Make it so. Make it happen. And what do we see? I don't know if you saw the similarities. Much like the story of Ruth where all of a sudden, Boaz just happens to come along and Ruth just happens to be in his field and they happen to be uh, kins family. Here comes Rebecca. She comes along. And you see in the text it says, before he even finished praying... She shows up. Do you know what that means? She'd left the house long before the prayer even started. God was working. This is providence. That's why the detail's there. Moses gives the detail. She got there before he even stopped means she left the house and God was already working before the prayer was even said, showing us that it was orchestrated by the hand of God. And she just happens to be from their family. She's like Isaac's second second cousin, something like that. And what's so shocking is that he doesn't even have to ask her the water of the camels. Did you see that? She offers. And this was no small offering. And Kent Hughes in his commentary records, this would have taken a couple hours in the heat of the morning or the day. Ten camels, each drinks about 25 gallons of water to fill up. That's a lot of water, isn't it? We would explode. 25 gallons of water with jugs of the day holding about Three gallons of water means it would take her 80 to 100 trips with her jug, walking down the steps of a well, so stair-step exercises too as she's doing it, down the stairs to the well and back out carrying a three-gallon jug. At least a couple hours of work. And the servant's astonished by who he found the type of woman, who she is. And you know what he does? He, he prays again. He worships. He's just a worshiping man. Look at verse 26 with me. He prays again. He says in 26, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman, God has guided, he says. God has provided. Here's our question then. Why do we worry over so many little things? Why do we do it? I mean, we say we believe God's providence, or I I hope you do at least, and yet we fret over every bump, every hiccup, every dollar, every stressor, when we do that, do you know what we actually do? We say with our mouths one thing, I believe God's providence, but with our life, we live as functional atheists. Do you know what I mean by that? We say we believe it, and yet we're functioning in day-to-day life like an atheist, even if we're not. Well, the Bible teaches us that God is working His providence through all things. You know, many churches, many churches don't teach this. It's hard. (laughs) There's a lot to wrestle with. You're going to be wrestling with thoughts about this later today. And I actually grew up in churches that we really didn't talk about this too much. And I will tell you, in my early 20s, the day I landed in a church and the first time growing up in a Christian home and as a Christian most of my life, and I heard someone tell me, God has control of your life. I'll tell you, this didn't sound like some heady intellectual (laughs) doctrine. No. It was the root and the ground of the road that which I could run on. I've told you this before probably, but in my early 20s, I suffered with anxiety attacks. Attacks that at, at times maybe even afraid to go out of the house. Maybe you felt like that before. Attacks that would cause my heart to just race. And I will tell you, it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't immediate. But when I started sitting under the preaching and pastoring of someone who taught me about God's sovereignty, his providence, the fact that he's working through everything, even the hard stuff in my life, I will tell you, a heady intellectual doctrine went to a really comforting thing for a 20 something year old who was struggling with anxiety attacks. Like I said, it didn't happen overnight. But all of a sudden, I had something to sink my teeth into and rest my heart on that began to start alleviating a lot of my worry, a lot of my anxiety. And I will tell you, that's why I'm passionate about it, because it transformed my life. May we trust our Father's providence more today through this story. May you. So who's this woman? We've got to close with her. Too often the great women of the Bible get brushed over, uh, swerved around maybe. She's important. She matters. And we're going to close with her today and she's going to be the one that leads us to Jesus and the table. Here's Rebecca. In faith, what does she do in this story? She shows hospitality to a stranger and responds to God's calling going out into the unknown. She's an incredible woman of faith who also shows an incredible trust in God's providence. Through Rebecca's hospitality, this nameless servant is allowed access to her family. And in particular, her brother Laban, who's going to show up in our next Genesis series, is a bit of a scoundrel. We know from our other stories, Laban's a lover of money. He's a lover of things, possessions, and money. And the servant breaks into this fantastic retelling of the story to Laban and his family, really repeating what, uh, what was read in the first part of the passage. He breaks into this fantastic retelling of all these providential actions that have brought him here to Laban's doorstep, Rebecca's home. He tells the story again. What was his intention? It was to convince them that this was from God, that God had operated it, that God had orchestrated, that God had seen to it, remember? Saw it, did it, made it happen. And so, they agree. Laban's response, he just kind of says it, and that's it, he shuts his mouth. Look at verse 50 of 24. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, Good or bad, behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. And there was no arguing. This is from God, he basically says, I can't say one way or another. Can't say good or bad. It's just clearly from God. So Rebecca, she can go. There's no arguing. There was no way to mistake it. This was providence this is providence so is the word in this story providence no but that doesn't matter the concept it's there we have a word for it because we got to communicate in our language but it's there providence this is purposeful action of god as we read this earlier this is the act of purposely providing for sustaining governing the world and it absolutely amazed the room of people they're blown away behind the everyday occurrences of a well and a bucket of water and some stinky camels, God secured the family line for the Messiah. Providence. But Rebecca's well should not be overlooked. Here we have a young girl. Think about her now. She's asked to leave behind her familiar home. Walk away from it. They try to keep her there a little longer. And thank the Lord that the servant had the wisdom to say, No, we need to go now. When we find out who Laban is, that would not have gone well, I can guarantee it, if he let her stay another 10 days. She wanted to go though, too. She's asked to respond to a request to marry a man that we don't think she's ever met. And doesn't seem like it when she says in the story, Who's that guy over there in the field? She's asked to go off to a strange life in another land. She's responding to go out to a call of God, out in to the unknown. And by doing so, she's the other side of that incredible venture the servant had for his math or Abraham had for his servant. She's the answer to carry on the Abrahamic line. She's called in to God's program. She's brought in to this, 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 this mission of salvation to bring the Redeemer to the world. That's a pretty big mission to be brought into. And what does she do? She steps out in faith. Where she sees and knows, she obeys. And where she doesn't know and can't see, she trusts God's providence too. She goes out into the unknown, much like who else did in our story? Abraham. Much like Abraham did. He stepped out into the unknown and followed the call of God much like Jesus did, too, as he left the Father's side. He stepped out into the unknown. He stepped out and followed his Father's plan. So here's our challenge then, as we wrap. I know there are moments when you and I are asked to step out into the unknown for God. Maybe you're on a journey that just started this last few months, This last year, the last couple years, maybe it started yesterday. You're asked to step out into the unknown for God, to obey in what you can see and trust in what you can't see. And we have moments like that as a church as well. We got them as individuals, we have them corporately as a church. So we step out. That's our challenge. And I know our response is we're tempted to fret. We're tempted to go to self-pity. There's been a lot of that lately. We're tempted to go to just, this is over, it's lost, we're done, we've we've lost it all. There's just this temptation to worry and anxiety like, man, God's falling asleep up there. (laughs) We live like functional atheists. So how do we face this challenge? Trust the Lord's providence in every circumstance of life while you faithfully act in obedience with what you can see and what you do know like Abraham and the servant Rebecca did, but where you can't, you trust in his providence because in the gospel Christ has done this for you. He's done the very same thing for you. The table, the elements, the Lord's Supper. They show us the providential power of God. Let me ask you a question. Do you think after all this work with Abraham and Isaac and the stories we're going to keep going on, if all this work God has done, after calling out Abraham and building up this people, protecting them, taking them into Egypt and Exodus and bringing them out, do you think after all of that, he would take a chance or just leave it up to blind fate to send his son to earth and say, well, I'll send Jesus to earth. I really hope they crucify him because that's the only way to pay for their sins. So Jesus, there's the mission. Hope you can manipulate it to make it happen. Does that sound like providence? Does that sound like the God of the Bible? And if he was able to work through the evilest act ever committed by mankind to bring about his purposes, can't he do that in the little moments of your life? And in the big moments? The Bible tells us this is the way it happened. Look at Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words... Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. This is in Peter's sermon. In your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up, crucified, according to the definite plan, the definite plan, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There we have it in one verse. God ordains it, and yet Peter says, but you're responsible. God has been working providentially in everything for all times and always will. I don't expect you to have it all figured out today because the Bible doesn't actually give us every detail of it. Maybe in heaven we'll know it. But these elements today, they sure remind us of His purposeful action, providence. And Jesus, Jesus, the one who trusted his Father's plan and purpose and said in that excruciating moment, not my will, but your will. Your plan, Father. Your providence, Father. See to it, God. Make it happen. As we prepare our hearts to take these elements, I want you just to contemplate the providence of God. And I want you to contemplate it in light of a struggle, a trial, something you've got to step out on in faith where you just can't quite see. And I want you to think about Jesus Christ in your mind, in your heart, and the way He stepped out too into the unknown, trusting His Father, coming to earth, saying, Father, Your will, You see to it, You make it happen. And then be comforted by those thoughts in your heart and mind, Take a moment and silently prepare. As we prepare, remember there's two tabs on this. The top one's for the bread, bottom one's for the juice. If you don't call yourself a follower of Christ today, here's what I encourage you to do. The Bible says, if you don't call yourself part of the family, it doesn't really make much sense to take part of the family meal. This is a family meal for those who call themselves part of the family of God. Nobody's going to be looking down to see if you take it or if you don't today. Nobody's going to be judging you, but I encourage you, it doesn't make much sense to take it, When we proclaim it, when we take it, we're part of God's family. If you can't call yourself that today, you can. You place your faith and trust in Christ today. That can be today for you. But for all of us, let's take a moment and think through and just spend some time with the Lord.